Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the myths of complementarity, uh, but also the sad realities in which they ring true. Uh, Once again, I want to give you a warning. If you're listening in, I am recording outside again today. I just can't help myself. It's so much nicer than being in the basement. So if you hear some noises, uh, again, just, just pretend with me that you're on the farm. Hey, let's jump into today's topic. So I want to talk a little bit about my position as a complementarian, and some of you might even be saying, what in the world is a complementarian? So um, let's just set the stage a little bit. Complementarianism is a subset of Christian theology that believes that men and women in certain covenant relationships have distinct roles. And there's varying degrees of complementarity, and I think that's one of the reasons why I want to have this conversation today, because sometimes I think it gets pigeonholed, but there's, there's quite a spectrum of complementarity. Maybe one of the, the best ways to put it is that complementarians seemingly hold a traditional view, coming out of uh, a Protestant Christian tradition. Uh, probably about 30 years ago, I guess. I don't know the exact timeline. I, I believe the term complementarian is younger than me. I'm 43 years old, and I think the term is that young. Um, as a response to some of the waves of feminism that were rolling into the evangelical church at the time, say in the 70s and the 80s, and some aspects of political or liberal feminism um was colluding uh, with Christian theology and there was a group of folks who was trying to distinguish themselves uh, from some of those um, feminist groups and one of the terms that was bounced around I believe was the traditional view but they really didn't want their view of human relationship to be tied to tradition because that seems to communicate more of a worldview of This is how the world works. And they really wanted it to be a kingdom of God distinction. So that's where complementarianism kind of was birthed from. I'm sorry for the poor history lesson. It's not a great history lesson. But to the best of my recollection, it's, you know, 30-some years old, perhaps. And it did flow out of that discussion of how do we distinguish ourselves as people who've held kind of a traditional Christian view of men and women in the church and in the home from egalitarians and... Uh, evangelical feminists. And so complementarianism as a subset was born. Uh, now with that some may some may ask, well Chris, how did you how did you become a complementarian? And I would say, you know, for me, I was born into a situation in which um, that was the way my church and my home functioned. But my home in particular was such a healthy expression where, you know, mom and dad existed equally, where there was um, 
no dominance, no power or control, uh, that the idea of headship and submission was not conflated in any way for me. It was reasonable. It made perfect sense. I guess I would say I was born into that expression of Christianity, but then it grew as I learned about it. And as I stepped into, in particular, this work of domestic violence prevention and intervention, it became all the more relevant because I learned that within the circles in which I traveled, the places in which I was learning, the people that I admired, there was a strong conviction that my theological heritage or understanding or how I was raised was causing domestic abuse. And so I had to wrestle with complementarian versus egalitarian theology to really come to a conclusion, can I really hold this theological view and continue to do the work that I do? It was a a watershed moment for me, quite frankly. And the conclusion I came to was that theologically, contextually, and biblically, I fit within the complementarian framework, as did my approach to domestic violence. There was nothing within the literature that I was reading or the passages of Scripture that were highlighted, such as Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3, that persuaded me otherwise. The dilemma seemed to be the way in which complementarity was either hijacked or used by individuals who wanted to exercise power and control and the ease at which those individuals could hide within the local church. I bring that up to talk to you about five myths that are common about complementarity, but I want to look at them from a different perspective, from a complementarian's perspective, from a complementarian Christian who really tries to care for victims of physical, sexual, emotional, psychological violence and say this kind of in a, in a nutshell summary of what we're going to talk about. Complementarians, we talk a really good game, as we should, because we have a really good position. But we, we tend to allow troublemakers and non-complementarians to hide among us. I hope that makes sense. Let's see if I can make sense of it. As I walk through these myths. Myth number one. This was from an article actually. Crossway article. Uh, I believe. Let me see if I can find the author. I believe it's Kostenberger. I'm not going to interact with the content of the article. It's a good article. Uh, Let me see if I can find the website. Yeah. Crossway.org. Crossway.org. And it's five myths about complementarianism. It's a fine article. I just wanted to take the points, the bullet points, and talk to you about some of my concerns. Myth number one, complementarianism is obsessed with male authority. Now, of course, Kostenberger does a great job articulating what most of us in the work articulate. This is a false narrative. Complementarianism is not obsessed with male authority. In fact, we may not even like that word, authority. I think the word authority is often used to demean and to destroy people. It's similar to what we're experiencing as a culture, where you have to have respect for authority no matter what. You can't challenge authority. And that's not, at least my interaction with complementarianism, the truth. The problem is that there are those among us who see male authority as 
the watershed itself as the end all. And that any attempt or any thought or any feeling that male authority is being undermined must be attacked. At the time of this recording, we've seen that over the, the past year or more. Whether you agree or disagree with them theologically, the shots that have been fired from the complementarian camp at Beth Moore, Amy Bird, Elise Fitzpatrick, even Rachel Held Evans, whether you agree with them or not, are not consistent with our servant leadership and gracious male headship position. They are more consistent with a male authority at all costs position. And I know that sounds harsh, but I think we as complementarians who agree with Kostenberger on this fact that we are not to be obsessed with male authority should speak out and be very uh, firm in our response that there is room for our sisters at the table and we must have gracious conversations, not uh, destructive conversations. Myth number two, complementarianism confines women to the home. Again, I think this is a established myth from the outside that most of us within the Christian complementarian circles would say that this is not about men outside the home and women confined to the home. However, again, there are those among us who have used complementarianism to isolate their partners uh, from occupational opportunities, from skill building, from economic freedom, uh, and certainly from interaction with friends and family. And for some reason, in the counseling room and in the pulpit, we've not called this um, behavior to account or questioned it, but we have allowed it to maintain or remain within complementarianism. If it is a myth, then I think we should honestly confront that myth that this is not a part of our theological construct. That no, it is, it is not the husband's decision alone that we have seven kids and your wife must homeschool them. That can be a decision. That can be something that you talk about. It can be an expression. But when you get to the point of demanding and coercing, then we have jumped out of the realm of complementarian theology and into some patriarchal kingdom of the world rendition of it. Myth number three. Myth number three. Complementarianism leads to domestic violence and spousal abuse. This is actually a commonly held myth and one that I continue to hear today. I'll be at secular conferences or I'll be at Christian conferences where I'm the only uh, person who ascribes to a form of complementarianism. And I will often hear this, that my theological position or the theological position of my tribe has, uh, it causes domestic violence. That's just not true. However, so among the tribes and groups and people that contact me about cases for domestic violence, the overwhelming majority come from conservative Protestant churches. The reality is, even though this is a myth of our theological construct, it is a reality within our churches. Theology without practical theology is neutered. It's not enough for us to say we believe this. We must confront um, the wickedness that flows out of a misinterpretation or misapplication of this. 
especially when it comes at the top levels uh, of our churches and ministries. When pastors within our conference, convention, uh, tribe, or circles can blatantly and openly uh, mock individuals based solely upon their gender, then we have a problem that goes far beyond our ability to articulate good theology. We have a problem with the application of said theology. And this happens uh, essentially in the home time and time again. I was just reviewing a case recently where a husband had come home from a Sunday sermon about the um, headship and submission passages and called a family meeting, meeting in which he demanded such respect from his family. What a horrible application of wonderful passages of Scripture like Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter 3. What a misapplication. Myth number four. And this is where I'm not sure how, how I'm going to talk about this yet, to be honest. But myth number four is complementarianism only limits women's access to the pastoral office. Now, as I recall, the, the author of the article is uh, talking about not viewing complementarianism as how it limits women, but in the areas in which it empowers women, but then also takes a good chunk of time to highlight how complementarians believe certain things about women teaching and women in office. This has not been my experience within the spectrum of complementarity. It is my experience within certain aspects of complementary. Let me, let me try to, to explain this. So within a lot of the tribes I work with, let's say the Southern Baptist Convention, the Presbyterian Church US, um, excuse me, of America, Orthodox Presbyterian, Independent Baptist Church circles, even some of the Mennonite circles that I've worked in, there are restrictions on women holding certain offices, or certain functions. There are, however, other aspects of soft complementarity or contextual complementarity denominations, churches I've worked with, where it's quite different. I'll give you an example, and, and this is one where, again, um, may reveal some things about me. I am ordained with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. We are considered a complementarian denomination. That's not one of our key doctrinal positions, but it's certainly a subset uh, however, we do allow women to hold the office of uh, pastor within certain frameworks. Uh, the CMA currently limits the role of senior pastor to men as well as district superintendent. However, that's a new development for us. We've always been considered a complementarian denomination, uh, but we had what was called an open question until the late 90s which was we did not know for sure. And so while the norm was male pastors, we had some female pastors in the denomination. Um, we've certainly seen female missionaries do things, and, and I appreciate the alliance for that. I, in fact, when it comes to ecclesiological structures, I prefer the open question. But I currently serve... Uh, as it's structured, and as now it's structured as a complementarian denomination, but we do allow women to teach, and we do allow um, women to hold the office of pastor, such as uh, worship pastor or missions director or what have you, and that surprises some folks. So I think even with this myth that it only limits women's access to pastoral office may or may not be true depending upon who you're talking to. 
I think for us in the domestic violence world, the number one issue is not so much how complementarianism is applied within the church, but how it's applied within the home. Uh, the last myth is that complementarianism can and should be culturally compatible. I never would have thought that this idea of cultural compatibility, that complementarianism is not about covenant relationships, but it's about men and women in general. I never would have thought that had I not met a pastor who told me that he would not vote for a female for president because of complementarianism. It really it blew my mind. I had never heard this particular theological argument conflated to that degree. In fact, the way I was taught was that uh, to view it as concentric circles, that the largest concentric circle is society, and that is the kingdom of the world. And within that structure, there's really no guidelines, no limits um, that, of course, it, and I was actually taught it was more compatible for an unbelieving woman to be president than a believing man to be president. So, so go, you might want to chew on that one for a while. I, I was, you know, under the impression that we shouldn't be voting for Christians for president, <laughs> that we should be voting for unbelievers. Um, so there's a whole other theological discussion to have. But then the, the second circle, the inner circle, was ecclesiological. And so within that covenant relationship, there were certain roles that men and women, women assumed. And then at the most narrow, again, was the home. But within that was always the understanding that complementarianism was about complementing, was about compatibility with each other as we display the image of God, the relationship between Jesus and his church, the uh, richness of the gospel, not about who gets to make decisions, about who is better or worse. And I think, listener, I want to bring this up because I can see the the myths, theologically speaking, being false. I can see a lot of us saying, well, of course that's not the case. But practically, when the rubber meets the road, these things are happening. And I don't think we should, and we can't, dismiss the reality of these problems associated with our theological position. We can't. I am not suggesting that denominations or Christians or tribes change their theology. I'm suggesting they change their structure of accountability, that they call people to account, that they teach it properly and nuanced in such a way that individuals who are abusing their partners at home, individuals that are abusing power, are called to account. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, that it was not just that the wise man heard the word. It wasn't just that he was able to you know, regurgitate the theological principles. He put them into practice. And his house stood strong under the weight of circumstances. But the foolish man also heard the word. The foolish man also had the truth. And his house fell with a great crash, and it was destroyed I think there comes a time where those of us who hold a certain theological position, when we witness the destruction of an individual because they don't heed the word of God, because they don't practice their theology, that we do not 
superficially prop up their failing structure, but we let it fall and we burn it to the ground and we celebrate its destruction because it highlights the way in which they've deviated from the word of God. Now we stand to help and care for those who are harmed in the wake of the destruction. You know, Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed man is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. He's like a tree planted by the water. The wicked, not so much. No, they're like the chaff. They're blown. James says the double-minded man is like somebody trying to walk on water. This is something that we as leaders must take seriously. No more demeaning women because they ask questions and that somehow hurts our sensibility, our theological sensibility. It should enhance us, not harm us. When women um, receive some kind of um, prominence in the church or opportunity in the church, can we not celebrate them rather than tear them down? And certainly in the home. Christian husbands who ascribe to our particular theological position and continue to demean and destroy their families? Can we not confront them rather than doubling down on their poor theological interpretation? I hope that was helpful, guys. Thank you for listening in on the PeaceWorks podcast today. If you'd like more information, like to know more about what we do, head on over to chrismoles.org. And if you would like more material, more content similar to what you're hearing on the podcast, consider joining PeaceWorks University. It's our online Uh, membership site. We have content that drops every week for our members. Thank you again, and God bless.